Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, we reached the end of the first quarter of the year, and what an interesting and turbulent three months it has been. A strong and positive January for the equity markets being followed by a period of weakness and a series of squalls, that may not be quite the right word, uh, including further interest rate increases and culminating in this month's banking sector dramas. This week saw global equity markets move up nicely, though, with yesterday, Friday, being the best day of the week, as well as the last day of the quarter, suggesting that for now, at least, the banking crisis has been navigated successfully without further fallout, albeit that the longer-term ramifications in terms of future lending and economic growth and so on remain to be seen. And there may also be an element of of end-of-quarter window dressing by fund managers perish the thought again, uh, looking to manage their first quarter numbers. In terms of economic data, one pointer that may be worth noting is that UK house prices were down 3% in the last month, the biggest monthly decline for 14 years, and I suspect a harbinger of further declines to come. In the bond market, we saw yields rising across most maturities, while oil prices strengthened and most commodities also firmed. Gold futures briefly touched but failed to break through that $2,000 an ounce mark. Bitcoin, which has performed strongly all through the first quarter, had another good week, hitting $28,000. The S&P 500 index ended the week up 3.5%, with most European markets up by actually more than that, although the UK FTSE 100 and all share indices were up by a little over and a little under 3% respectively. Investment trusts, however, in aggregate, only managed a small gain, with the Investment Trust Index, which tracks the performance of the 180-odd trusts in the Osher Index, up a quarter of 1%, and the average discount narrowing by around 1% or so from a peak of more than 17% in midweek. Those widening discounts have been a big talking point in the sector this year. What's behind it? Well, while rising interest rates remain a significant contributor, in dragging down the ratings of alternative asset trusts in particular, which now account for roughly half the value of the investment trust universe, there may also have been some other factors at work. Uh, One broking firm, for example, noted in research this week that anxiety created over the banking sector may also have played a part, with, uh, quote, market makers partially stepping back to ensure they're not caught out if the crisis deepens, that leading to wider bid-offer spreads, and a reduction in appetite for them to hold risk. To discuss the discount issue, which is certainly becoming very live matter, and the latest news from the investment trust sector, I am joined this week by Anthony Leatham, Head of Investment Trust Research at the brokers Peel Hunt, making his debut on the podcast and doing so to talk about some interesting research about discounts and buybacks that they put out uh, a few days ago and by an old friend, Peter Hewitt, manager of what used to be known as the BMO Global Managed Portfolio Trust, but now trades as the CT Global Managed Portfolio Trust, following the sale of BMO's UK fund business to Columbia Threadneedle. This trust is unusual in having two portfolios, a growth and an income portfolio, 
with shareholders having the option to switch between them if they so choose. Peter's been the manager of this trust, which only invests in other investment trusts since its listing in 2008. For subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, the podcast system subscription publication, this week we have a profile of JP Morgan Emerging Markets to be followed next week by Greencoat UK Wind, ticker UKW, the only renewable energy trust that remains committed to increasing its dividend each year in line with the rate of retail price inflation. Uh, That gave shareholders a 13% increase in dividend for 2022. You can also find there our usual summary of the main news and NAV share price and discount movements in the investment trust sector, plus the Q&A with Sandy Nairn, manager of Global Opportunities Trust, that I mentioned last week. My end of quarter video review of the investment trust sector and the markets will be posted in a few days' time for subscribers. Global Opportunities Trust, ticker GOT, was among a whole raft of investment trusts reporting the results this week. Far too many for me to be able to mention them all this week, I'm afraid, although you can find, as I said, our weekly summary and links to all the relevant announcements on the Moneymakers website. I counted at least 15 or more sets of annual results uh, out this week, including some uh, prominent names in the trust universe. Uh, Those reporting positive NAV total returns for the 2022 calendar year Any positive return was a notable achievement, I would say. Included BH Macro, ticker BHMG, the Brevin Howard Managed Hedge Fund, whose NAV per share was up 21.9%. And two core infrastructure trusts, International Public Partnerships, ticker INPP, uh, NAV total return plus 12.5%. And BB Global Infrastructure, ticker BBGI, NAV total return plus 9.1%. Both these trusts have increased their target dividends again for 2023 and yield roughly 5.5%. Two renewable energy trusts also reported uh, annual figures. This included Octopus Renewables Investment Trust, ticker ORIT, NAV total return plus 12.3%, and VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, ticker GSEO, whose NAV total return was plus 7.6% two positive numbers there for those, with dividends well covered in both cases and scheduled to increase again this year, though this was not enough to prevent them both moving to discounts, as indeed most renewable energy trusts have done. While the NAV numbers of all these infrastructure trusts have already been reported, the annual results usefully provide more detail and market commentary. While most alternative asset trusts have moved to a discount, as I say, Octopus Renewables stands out as among the worst affected its discount having slipped to 18%, perhaps reflecting the fact that its gearing is amongst the highest in the sector. Two more property investment trusts also reported annual results, underlying the negative impact that rising bond yields have had on that sector too. Supermarket Income REIT, ticker SUPR, confirmed an NAV total return of minus 17.4% in 2022, while the equivalent number from a regional REIT, ticker RGL, the Away From London Office Specialist, discount currently 27%, was minus 24% NAV total return. Its dividend yield, fully covered last year, is currently 11%, the highest in the battered commercial property sector. In the growth capital sector, the Shehalian Fund, ticker MNTN, managed by Bailey Gifford, Uh, which has fallen to a discount of more than 40%, 
confirmed a 24% NAV decline in the year to the end of January 23, and noted that the deployment of the proceeds of its C-share issue has been delayed because the prices on new investments it was presented with were too high, although it says it now sees opportunities in the secondary market as other funds come under pressure to realise existing holdings or return capital to shareholders. In contrast, CT Private Equity, ticker CTPE, which also stands on a discount of around 40%, reported a positive NAV total return of 14.8% in 2022, and noted that its leverage has been much reduced. Like Shehalian, the trust says that it will be harder to achieve exits in the current climate, and fundraising is becoming considerably more arduous in the private equity space, which indeed is one reason why the discounts there remain so wide. RTW Venture Fund, ticker RTW, which invests in early stage healthcare and biotech companies, reported an NAV total return of minus 10%, which it said was much better than the 30% decline in the Russell 2000 biotech benchmark, one of two that it follows. The other benchmark was roughly in line with what RTW reported. Discount there, though, is still in the mid-30%. Moving away from the alternative assets sector, we also had annual results from the aforementioned Global Opportunities Trust, whose uh, steps to implement the bearish stance of its manager helped generate a notable positive NAV total return of 14.5% in 2022. And from BlackRock Latin America, ticker BRLA, whose NAV total return was behind its index, but at least positive at 6.6% after several years of relatively poor performance. Uh, The board there has committed to another tender offer should the trust underperform over the four years to December 2025, as it did underperform over the most recent equivalent period. The last tender offer seeing 58% of shareholders tendering their shares at NAV minus 2%. Meanwhile, Pershing Square Holdings, ticker PSH, the US equity trust managed by Bill Ackman, uh, which is a member of the FTSE 100 index now, reported an NAV decline of 8.8%, which was some 9% better than its benchmark, the S&P 500 index. But uh, Mr. Ackman noted that this decent relative performance was in large part attributable to its successful interest rate hedging strategy, uh, rather than from the performance of its equity portfolio, which was hampered by the hefty losses that uh, Pershing Square incurred from its brief ownership of Netflix early in 2022. You may recall that it made a big investment in Netflix only to reverse course uh, three months later, having said it discovered some things in Netflix. It no longer gave it confidence in its ability to predict its future performance, which has, of course, though, been recently much, much stronger. Pershing Square Holdings has brought back nearly a quarter of its shares in the last five years in an attempt to uh, reduce its discount but that remains stubbornly at uh, 32%. Other equity trusts reported included J.P. Morgan American, ticker J.A.M., JAM, which uh, reported a NAV total return similar to Pershing Square Holdings of minus 8.7% in sterling terms. European assets NAV total return minus 28%, well behind its European smaller companies benchmark which the board is now proposing to change, incidentally, to allow it to invest in a broader range of companies, also reported those results. As did Fidelity Japan, ticker FJV, 
which uh, reported a very unhappy looking NAV total return of minus 24.5% against a 4.1% movement in its benchmark. Its style has been very much out of favour. So I was very happy to catch up this week with Anthony Leatham, who is head of investment company research at Peel Hunt. The brokers are one of the bigger brokers who uh, make markets and uh, do research in the investment trust sector. What prompted me to uh, ask Anthony to come on the podcast was a piece of research he and his colleagues have done a few days ago, which was looking at uh, discounts and buybacks, some of the trends there and which trusts are doing what they should be doing and which are not and so on. So I thought that'd be a good topic to discuss. Obviously, Anthony, we've seen discounts across the sector widen quite dramatically since the start of last year. I think on the investment trust index, it's gone out from around 2.5% to something like 16% now. What was the purpose of your research, first of all? What gave you the idea to do this bit of research and what was the motivation? Yeah, thank you, Jonathan, for having me. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The buybacks have been in evidence for many, many years, and we wanted to really capture as many data points as we could on the trends and really understand who's active, who's not, uh, and maybe even look at the efficacy of the buyback policies that are in place. I mean, the headline figure is really that three and a half billion pounds worth of buybacks have taken place in the investment company sector in 2022 and 2023 year to date, which is a, a big number. And, you know, when you slice and dice that detail, what we learn quite quickly is that the decision around making a buyback is not easy. It's one that a board will make in collaboration with the manager to really understand what options are available. And it's not clear cut. You know, you could buy back, you could add to positions in the portfolio, you could buy new positions, you could reduce gearing. So I think it's a real a live issue for boards to consider on a day to day basis, particularly at times like this when discounts are much more volatile. I guess some of the findings in our analysis are quite intuitive. You know, like larger trusts have more scope to buy back their own shares. And those trusts with more robust discount control policies, even those with a zero discount policy, have typically been the most active in both issuance and buybacks. But importantly, I think a buyback can be a powerful statement of intent, particularly when it's accompanied by insider buying from either the manager or the board or both. So it's an important mechanism. And I guess to the efficacy point, we discussed as a team what would be the best measure of that because it is hard to measure and, and some boards really don't believe that buybacks are the answer. But we looked at discount volatility as maybe a measure of success and it did show, the data did show that the higher the percentage of shares that were bought back coupled with the most frequent buyers of, of their own stock actually had a, a meaningful impact on the discount volatility more so than perhaps the more like headline grabbing monetary figure. So the millions of pounds bought back didn't necessarily have the desired effect. So when you say it had an impact on volatility, you mean it reduced the volatility compared to what was true of those who didn't do buybacks. Is, is that right? Correct. Yeah, that's what the data shows us. But obviously, the other big caveat is that there are other contributing factors to that, be it market backdrop, macro factors, stock specific issues. So, you know, there's always a bit of a caveat with this data. Of course. And one of the big features of the market at the moment is that a lot of alternative assets, which for many years, a lot of them were trading at premiums, are now trading at discounts. 
and in some cases for almost the first time. And so it's, I guess it's becoming an issue for them as well, despite the fact that they have constraints around how much they can do buybacks in certain cases, depending what kind of assets they are. Is there a distinction between what's happening with equity investment trusts and alternative asset trusts? And uh, we have seen some alternative asset trusts put their toe in the water recently. Do you think that trend is going to continue? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. The lion's share of the buyback activity is still with those conventional equity trusts. But we have seen some evidence of alternatives, particularly across property, infrastructure, and some private equity, stepping in, buying back their own shares. And names include things like Balanced Commercial Property Trust, Aquila European Renewables, Augmentum, Fintech, as well as things like Cordiant Digital or Downing Renewables. So Trusts within the very broad category of alternatives are clearly looking at it, but there are limitations and there are challenges, uh, particularly as the closed-ended fund structure has allowed them to get involved in less liquid or entirely illiquid underlying assets, and that makes it harder to release capital to buy back your own shares. So again, a bit of a balancing act, but at the same time, a lot of these vehicles can throw off quite a lot of excess cash which in turn could allow for buying back of your own shares. One of the issues, uh, let's just pick on one sector just for a moment in this context, uh, and that is the private equity sector, as you said. A lot of trusts in private equity are trading on very big discounts, not just modest double-digit discounts. They're on 30 40 50%. And one or two of them have been trying to do buybacks. I think uh, Pantheon tried it last year, for example. But there's, there's not much evidence yet that it's actually working, which I think comes back to your efficacy point. What would your comment to people like Pantheon be if they've tried it and it's not particularly had an impact on the discount? Would you advise them to do more until they're not doing enough or maybe just uh, other factors are too important? Yeah, I think the private equity example is pretty unique, probably because of the nature of the underlying investments and the timing of cash flows and commitments. So in the fund of fund context, you'll have someone like a Pantheon or Harbourvest making commitments further out to funds that will draw down on that capital uh, over a period of time. So you've got that that commitment to consider, you've got the cash flows, but you've also got perhaps the lumpiness of the realisation. So so really being able to model what cash flow comes in and, and determine at a given time whether that's to be used for the existing portfolio, future commitments, or for buying back stock, that is actually uh, it's quite a difficult exercise. And I think if a few occasions where that has been done to buy back stock in the market and it hasn't been that effective. I think that probably is rather off-putting for the board uh, in terms of that being a good use of, of capital at that given moment. I think on the direct side as well, you've got situations where underlying companies might not be profitable yet, might be in their growth phase, might need additional support through their life and through their development. Again, that will require cash. So a decision to be made as to how much you earmark for a buyback versus how much you need to help support those businesses through their growth. I guess it's fair to say about private equity that they very rarely have traded at a premium. So it's not as if this is a new problem having a discount. It's just the scale of it that's been the issue. I mean, the alternative, I guess, for them is actually if they need to, they'll have to realise something that they might not otherwise have realised and hope that that has an impact as well. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, I mean, that is not sort of central to my thesis, really. It's about active management of the portfolio and making sure that the positions are well funded. You wouldn't want to see strategies have to sell assets at this stage. And that's why, you know, going into this particular crisis in the investment trust world, it's healthy to see that on balance, the sectors like private equity and to an extent also property 
have been less geared and that is a stronger position than if you were over leveraged going into this kind of volatility. But I think the buyback activity, you know, it's subtle. It varies across different sectors and we've seen a lot of strategies make use of it and actually it can be both accretive to NAV and say reduce discount volatility, which I think is helpful to end investors. Well, let's go back to the data then. Let's talk about some of the names then. So if we look at those that have done most buybacks, obviously you make the point that what's actually relevant is not necessarily the absolute amount, but the percentage amount, if you like, of share capital that they have bought back when they felt the need to. And if we look down that list, what would we see at the top of the list in terms of trusts which have bought back the most shares, uh, A, in absolute terms, and then B, as a percentage of their issued share capital? I think the top of the list from the point of view of frequency of buybacks would be the likes of Witan or Martin Curry Global Portfolio. In terms of the amount spent and the frequency of buybacks, the likes of Scottish Mortgage, Pershing Square, Monks are definitely in there. And then the trusts that have established a robust discount control mechanism, the likes of capital gearing and personal assets in the flexible sector, you know, really targeting that zero discount policy. So they're in the market, not only issuing stock on a premium, but also buying back on a discount. You also got a table, I think, of some of the top 10 of those which as a percentage of issued share capital. And that includes some smaller names as well who've been quite active. I can see uh, there's the Troy Income and Growth, which has obviously had a rough time recently. MyGo Opportunities. I can see, as you say, Witten, and but also Rights and Issues Investment Trust. So there's a kind of mixed bag across there, if I put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, size hasn't prevented uh, certain trusts from really defending their discount or stepping into the market. But I think there comes a tipping point where a board will have to step back and assess whether the scale of the vehicle and the resultant liquidity of, of the trust might impact an ability for a buyer to get involved. So again, it's, it's a subtle point and it's a balancing act. But trusts have to juggle a few competing priorities. But as you say, a number of trusts there which are small but have got still a very robust approach to discount control. If we look at those discount controls then, I mean, it's fair to say there's still a minority of trusts who have discount control. Well, some of them have discount control policies, others who have specific targets. Do you think there should be more who have specific or explicit discount control policies and mechanisms? Again, the views differ, but I think what we've learned is that some trusts, particularly in more volatile asset classes or those asset classes that perhaps are subject to more tactical asset allocation decisions, would struggle, I think, to defend a, a particular level. I think that level might become a target for some investors and might, might actually be counterproductive. We can use the data to also determine what the implied discount control level is. So even if a trust has said, we haven't given a stated figure, you can tell, particularly for ones that are frequently in the market, you can tell what sort of level the board is trying to target with the activity they do and the, on the days that they buy back, the level at which they do it. So, you know, you mentioned MIGO opportunities. Well, really what we can tell from the activity they've undertaken is that they're typically trying to maintain the discount at around 2% based on the average and the range of buybacks executed in the market. And one of the criticisms you hear is about boards which actually do have a discount control policy or a stated objective, but yet they don't actually always follow through, particularly when markets uh, get tough. Obviously, there's always a sort of disclaimer in there that if it's a really disrupted market, we might not do it. But do you think that is a fair criticism? And if so, you know, can you give us an example of a trust maybe that uh, 
isn't doing what you would expect it to do? Well, I don't think we necessarily picked out or named and shamed trusts that have made promises but not followed through. I think you're right. The language does offer the opportunity to really step back and assess the market conditions. And in particular, volatile times, really the buyback effectiveness will be called into question. Maybe we're actually in a period like that right now. You know, I don't think I recall trading days where we've seen such volatility and such large moves in discounts across the sector. And I think at that stage, it really is hard to understand just what's causing that negativity. Could it be an overhang of sellers in the market for a particular reason? Could it be underlying deterioration of fundamentals? But really, this when discounts correlate and move in the way that they have in the last few trading sessions, I think it would be hard for a board to confidently step in and defend at those levels. So when you're sort of reaching abnormal market conditions, I think it's understandable that a board would maybe hesitate and want to understand the direction of travel in more detail. I think there are some some trusts that could perhaps be subject to criticism, but actually the data tells us that they've been as active on both sides of the equation. What you don't want is a sort of skew whereby a trust that's doing really well issues lots of stock into the market, but then when times are tough, they don't step in and defend the discount. And I think that criticism could have been levelled at something like Scottish Mortgage, just purely on a sort of a, a superficial basis. But actually, when you delve into the data, it's interesting because over the last five years, the trust has issued about £1.1 billion worth of stock. But actually, if you look at the buybacks, net of the buyback activity, which is a very similar amount in monetary terms, you've really only seen the shares in issue increase by less than 1% net over that five-year period, which actually dispels the myth that you know, a strategy that was really popular, everyone seemed to want to have it in their portfolios, is only ever issuing stock and never buying back. Actually, they have been active in the market. And that's part of the purpose of the exercise really was to dispel some of the myths that might be out there. Yes, I mean, the criticism is some trusts might have both their cake and eat it, to borrow a phrase from politics, which perhaps I shouldn't do. But you mentioned Scottish Mortgage. Well, that's a very good, interesting example. I mean, it's hard to think of a trust which has had a trickier time recently, and yet they're still out there buying shares. But they're going to run up against their limit, are they? Not quite soon, because of their commitment to private companies and so on. That's going to be a potential constraint on their going on buying back shares. In fact, have they done so recently, in the most recent past? Well, they have been active in, in recent weeks. I mean, I, I don't have the exact data on where we would draw a line or where the board might have to question whether they can or not buy back stock. But I think the unlisted holdings percentage at around 30% of NAV is a key consideration, as with the level of cash and the level of gearing. So it's, it is, as, as say, trying to triangulate all those different considerations and competing forces. But I think, you know, just on the Scottish mortgage point, a lot has been written in, in recent days and weeks. And I think as there is a lot of negative sentiment towards it. And part of that is to do with the opaque nature of the unlisted holdings. What does that do to the NAV? Is there due to be some sort of catastrophic reset of NAVs across those, you know, due to the unlisted holdings? And I think, you know, if I take a step back from that, we are not in that camp. We're not in that sort of very negative, very bearish outlook. We actually are much more constructive on private equities, particularly at these levels a sort of glass half full approach, if you like. And it's interesting when you look again, you dive into the data on Scottish mortgage, that 30% of NAV, if you look at the 92 instruments that are in there, 
they've conducted just under 600 revaluations across those 92 portfolio holdings in 2022. And the data says that, you know, almost 80 of them were reviewed more than five times. So this is to do with the fact that you're looking at a, a daily NAV on Scottish mortgage, which is easily classified as perhaps being stale or out of date because of the private equity positions. But reality, under the surface, they are reviewing those positions very frequently and passing any movements through to that NAV. So actually, I think it's more up to date than it's being given credit for. And then if you look into the sort of size of the revaluations, if you exclude upward revaluations, the average write down on those private positions over the course of 2022 was around 45%. And so when you backfill that underlying data, you can maybe build a more positive story, which is that the actual valuations are up to date as best they can be. And that information is reflected in the NAV. And that gives you a bit more sense of what is the fair value for Scottish mortgage? What is the appropriate discount uh, for that trust in the market, given the sentiment, given the views, given the volatility? And we've, we've expressed the same view across things like RIT Capital, Harbourvest Global Private Equity. You know, I think at the moment it is one-way traffic in terms of sentiment towards private equity. So we are putting our flag down and, and offering a contrarian perspective on unlisted holdings. Well, that's very welcome and uh, good to hear that. Presumably, though, the boardroom spat that we had at Scottish Mortgage, perhaps that's not describing it in its fullest terms, but the removal of uh, that non-executive director and the standing down of the chairman and so on, which is obviously ostensibly, he says, was about issues around how you deal with uh, privately held companies. I mean, that has damaged sentiment and I guess is unhelpful for the sector and for the trust. But in your view, is that now in the price, the Scottish mortgage at an 18-90% discount to what is possibly or possibly not already a, a discount to the underlying NAV? Yeah, well, I'm sort of hesitant to comment on anything relating to what's been going on in the boardroom because I think it's still playing out and we don't really know. So it could get worse. That could have an impact on the rating. Let's put that to one side. If we just look at Scottish mortgage as a portfolio, 30% private, 70% listed equities, if you apply an average 40% discount on the private component, and then you dovetail that with a 15% discount, which is the average you're seeing across some of the technology trusts on the remaining 70%, the blended outcome is a 22% discount. It's trading on our data sheet this morning on a 21% discount. So you're quite close to fair value, for want of a better description, but it also tells you that any weakness from here on that very kind of high level assessment could provide an attractively valued entry point into the strategy. Now, the other thing I would add is quite a lot of the negativity is assuming that everything in the unlisted portfolio is toxic. But actually, last month, we read that North Vault, one of the top private equity holdings in that portfolio, is talking to banks and talking to IPO banks about maybe coming to market. So, I think there's always a counterpoint and the devil's in the detail. But actually, if you look at some of those top holdings, they are quite exciting companies. And it's easy to bash this situation on the head while it's looking weak. But I think we can build a maybe more constructive view around it. And in that context, do you think that there's been a sort of contagion effect across some of the other Bailey Gifford trusts? Obviously, quite a few of them, they either won the mandate or had the mandate and have added private company exposure. They're not in the same way as Scottish Mortgage. Do you think there's a bit of a contagion effect looking across those Bailey Gifford Trusts, which are in that particular style bucket? Yeah, I mean, I'd even go further than that. I think yes is the short answer to your question there. And you're right, the degree to which unlisted holdings appear in those portfolios varies uh, greatly across the range. 
But actually, this concept of long duration, growth style investing, that jam tomorrow style, the negativity towards it has played out across a number of different trusts. And then there's an extension of that as well. So not only private equity, and then this hybrid listed and unlisted, but also in the infrastructure space, some of the newer entrants have been accessing the real assets, the underlying real assets through investing in private companies. So it's sort of infrastructure through private equity approach. And perhaps the most well-known name in that space is 3i infrastructure. But more recently, you've seen Pantheon Infrastructure join Cordiant Digital and Digital 9. They're on discounts ranging from 20% to 40%. But the underlying assets within those portfolios are very valuable. And the momentum and the drivers of growth behind some of those investments are very powerful. And I think that at the moment is being quite easily overlooked by the market. We recently published a piece that actually was starting to look more closely at those deeper discounts in the market. And there are other themes that come to the surface. The one that surprises me perhaps the most, given that we've got so much macro noise about inflation, is that inflation linkage seems to have also fallen out of favour. So the reason I think of this time as being more akin to like the global financial crisis is just there's just very little differentiation between strategies at the moment. There's, there's just a downward pressure on, on discounts. And if you look at inflation-linked strategies, something like Octopus Renewables on an 18% discount, or even in the property space, something like a residential secure income on a 36% discount, you know, these are really quite interesting levels. If you can step away from the noise and just look at it in terms of the underlying fundamentals and that linkage. And then the fourth theme, if you like, that comes out from that is, is one of the competition for yield. So there's actually a different environment today than we've seen for a long time where fixed income assets, things like sterling high yield bonds are delivering very compelling yields. And actually that puts pressure back on the investment trust world to really justify what they're offering in terms of, of income to investors. And, and one area that's actually been shrinking in size in terms of number of trusts been the fixed income space. But we highlight a couple of names that really fit the bill in terms of high yield, so 7 8% yield, short duration and, and floating rates. I think that's really crucial at this stage. And things like Sequoia Economic Infrastructure on a 15 discount and something a little bit more niche, but still very relevant is, is Biopharma Credit, which again has all the characteristics you're looking for to feed into portfolios and is competitive on a yield basis. Yeah, no, that's one which I looked at several times. I like that one. So what do you think really is underlying this? Is it sort of simplistic analysis? In other words, guilt yields have gone up and therefore you just take a quick look at the spread between the guilt yield and whatever your trust is yielding. Or is it that and a combination of bad sentiment? And if so, where is the sentiment coming from, given that the market's actually been quite resilient for the last uh, few months? What do you think is actually going on? Discounts are reflecting a combination of factors, obviously, but which do you think is the most important? Say it's, it's a combination of factors. From our meetings with investors, there is a lot of nervousness around. I think fingers have been burnt. Investment trust strategies have been unhelpfully correlated to each other and to other risk assets in the difficult times, which is not unusual, but it's also not helpful if you've used building blocks like alternative trusts to bring in diversification within your portfolios. As you say, the market itself seems at times to have stabilised and actually, when you step back and look at the performance of the MSCI world or the technology index or whatever the benchmark might be, 
performance has stabilized. So therefore, we've got a disconnect. Uh, we've almost got a sort of a momentum to the discount widening story that's out of touch with the rest of the market. To me, that anomaly actually is very interesting and can offer up a lot of opportunities, but it's uncomfortable and there's a lot of volatility around. So you know, I think for the more cautious investor, having to wear discount volatility at this stage is not particularly helpful. So therefore, there's a reticence to get involved. And then some strategies have gone much wider than we would have expected, which does, you say, beg the question, is there something else at work here? There's a lot of repricing of risk. Risk-free rates have moved. There's a lot of repricing of what yield do I need today versus what, what I needed two years ago. So you know, asset allocation frameworks are having to adjust. But again, you step back. I think in five years' time, if we were to have this conversation, we could look back and say, well, that was a very interesting time in the investment trust world. Wish I'd bought more. And that's really where I've landed at having seen the, um, the chaos from the global financial crisis. Indeed. If you go back that far, then it was a very similar experience. I mean, I guess you could combine that by saying, well, I wish I'd sold a few more back in 2021. <laughs> and combine that with it. it does swing from one extreme to the other. That's obviously the nature of the game. Well, thank you so much, Andy, for coming on and talking to us and explaining uh, your thoughts about discounts and indeed some other very interesting topics indeed. So uh, thanks very much for your uh, contribution. Thanks very much for having me. My second port of call this week was to talk to Peter Hewitt, the manager of the CT Global Managed Portfolio, which has been rebranded following the move of the former BMO trusts to a new home at Columbia Threadneedle. Peter, you've been in the markets a long time and you've got a little bit of grey hair like me. So it's been a tough year and a tough quarter. Since we last spoke, things have not particularly got any better, have they? So what was your reading of how the markets are behaving at the moment? Well, very tricky is the answer, Jonathan. I mean, the overall UK equity indexes are the FTSEs up two. It was up a bit more, but this past month, March, has not been good, really, and things are off, give or take, about 5%. Within that, investment companies have continued to underperform. They gave up all the gains of the previous five, seven years last year, but it has continued into this quarter. And the all-share sector index for the investment company's sector is about 5% behind the all-share index. So it's down three versus up two. And I think one of the key features there has been the widening of discounts. The average sector discount, which at the beginning of last year was two, by the end of the year had gone to 13, is now 17 and a half. And that is really quite wide in a historical context. So that's been one of the key reasons for the underperformance. Yeah, you have to go back a long way, with the exception of the brief moment during the pandemic, to get back to those kind of levels of discount. We're back to the global financial crisis levels, are we not? And um, that's, as you say, a difficult backcloth. In the last few weeks, we've had all these dramas around the banks in the US and also in Europe, which is weighed heavily on sentiment. And essentially, I mean, it seems to me, I don't know if you agree with this, but it seems to me that um, everybody's looking for some kind of direction here. We're not quite sure how things are going to play out on the inflation front, on the on the bond market front. And unfortunately, um, 
it seems pretty clear that the central banks don't know either. So we're kind of we're all groping around. They're groping around on a policy front and we're groping around on an investment front. Would you think that's a fair description of what's going on? Yes, I do. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I think in the quarter we're about to come into, inflation will definitely start falling in the UK. It has begun to in America, but in the UK and Europe, you'll probably see. So that's good. As far as interest rates are concerned, there's just so many different views. I mean, the higher for longer, which seemed like that was going to be January, February, suddenly economies are starting to re-accelerate, particularly in America, but even ours has been more resilient. Therefore, you think, well, to stamp out inflation, they're going to have to raise interest rates and keep them higher for longer. But given what's going on with the banking system, bond market is saying, well, we think there'll be rate cuts later this year. And also, if there's tightening of lending standards, that will definitely bring on a recession, perhaps later this year and also next year. And how deep will that be? I think all of this uncertainty is reflected in investor sentiment. And that actually, as good a barometer, is the discount on the sector. Because I think investors really are not sure. And there's not a lot of sort of, I want to buy this type of feeling. It's more, maybe I should lighten up here or sell this next one for reasons X and Y. So it's concerning. And that uncertainty, I think, is currently reflected. The one thing I would say is, I think valuations are beginning to get really quite attractive. Now, that does not mean to say next week you're getting a big rise in the market, but it does mean that actually maybe now is not a bad time to start considering certain, in our case, investment companies. Yeah, I mean, markets look forward, as we know. As you say, I mean, I do detect a considerable range of opinions and uncertainty out there. Uh, And in a year's time, we might look back and say this is a great buying opportunity. Or we might say the market was very prescient and (laughs) it's got a lot worse. But as you say, in terms of discounts, I mean, I guess one of the issues there is we've talked a lot about this in the last few weeks uh, with all the guests on the podcast. I mean, one of the issues there is now that alternative asset trusts account for about half the investment trust universe. I mean, that's where the sort of biggest change has taken place in a lot of uh, sectors which were trading at premiums are now trading at discounts. And in particular, there's been a carnage in the commercial property sector and to a lesser extent in the infrastructure and renewable space. You own some of those trusts. Uh, Tell us about what role they play in your portfolio and how they've been performing. Well, yes, I have got a few alternatives. And to be honest with you, the main reason I'm owning them is actually for income. And they're in my income portfolio. And it's for diversity of income, because it means you're not relying only on equity income trusts. And should we hit a difficult patch and some big companies cut their dividends, then some equity income trusts might be at risk there. And so that's the key reason. So, for example, I've got Greencoat UK Wind is quite a big holding. And that's actually been one of the better performers. It's up two or three percent this year and it's yielding five, five and a half percent. But they have said they will be increasing the dividend in line with our RPI. So that's plus 13 percent this year. They've achieved that since 2013 under IPO. And so they're going to be increased the dividend 13% this year. And that's actually pretty good. So I've got that one. I've got Renewables Infrastructure Group, which has not been as good, but still gives a pretty decent yield. So that's what I use it for. 
predominantly for non-equity income. And in terms of commercial property, obviously there's been a pretty brutal time out there for commercial property trusts. I mean, I think it's taken a number of people by surprise. So perhaps it always happens when uh, interest rates go up, the commercial property is, comes into focus. But the kind of markdowns they had in the last quarter of last year were pretty striking in some cases, 20% or so. What have you done in that area? I think you've sold at least uh, one of your holdings. Yes, I have. And I, I have. I didn't have a lot of holdings, but I don't have anything in the kind of straightforward property REIT sector. They've tended to be quite specialist. Um, I did have supermarket income REIT, which I sold towards the end of January. And actually, I didn't think I got a very good price. I, I got 99 pence. It's now 85, having been trading at 110, 120 and more. And it's not as a bad company at all, but the change in yields meant there was quite a big decline in the asset value. And also looking forward, I think their dividend probably will be okay, but you're not going to get much growth out of it. And to a greater or lesser degree, those comments apply to almost everything. I mean, one that I was on a, a call with yesterday, specialist company called Impact Healthcare, which I think is an extremely well-run company. And um, their NAV has fallen only slightly from 114 to 110 pence. The shares have gone from roughly 110-ish, currently at 90. So it's a big discount. They forecast an increase in the dividend this coming year, and it's yielding probably 65 to 7%, which is growing. But, you know, the share price would indicate, is there something amiss with it? I don't think there is. It's not that heavily indebted. It's got very secure rental income. So I think I'm going to stick with that one. But to be honest with you, that whole area has been really under the hammer of late. Well, obviously, what happens to interest rates will be relevant there. But also, of course, in the broader commercial property space, which would you say you're not invested in, if there's a recession that is going to have an impact. But some of these specialist trusts, as you say, will be effectively kind of insulated from that to some extent, won't they? Because they're ultimately backed by government revenues in, in one form or another in several cases. I think yes is what I would say. So you're not going to have some horrible disaster coming out here. But it's just that when interest rates go up, you have to look at, well, what's the nature of the debt that they have? And all property companies are geared to a greater or lesser extent is it fixed or not? And what is the cost of it? And because the availability of finance, I think, will become an issue as we move through this year. And also the ability to raise money in the market. Another one I sold was Assura, which is quite a good company. It owns basically GP practices and small medical centres across the UK. And it's done extremely well over the years. But the actual underlying growth of Asura is very modest indeed. And they used to regularly tap the equity market, but now it's at a discount. That's not going to happen. And finding yields are going out not nearly as much as in other areas of property. But that means the actual asset value is probably not going to make much progress at all over the next couple of years. And so I think the dividend is safe. I think the company is all right, but you kind of feel... Why am I owning it when you have to be quite hard sometimes and say, well, actually, there might be other opportunities, maybe more in the equity space that you kind of feel potentially have better returns over the next year or two. 
Well, we'll come back to the income portfolio in a moment. I think we just perhaps mentioned the growth portfolio because, of course, your trust is unusual and you've got an income portfolio and a growth portfolio and shareholders can switch between the two. Uh, and the income from the growth portfolio is transferred to the income portfolio and in return for a bit of money going back the other way. So that's an interesting structure. But let's just talk about the growth sector, which obviously has done worse than the income portfolio for obvious reasons in this kind of market climate. You're in Edinburgh, Peter, famously, and uh, not far away is the historic house of Bailey Gifford. I think we probably have to mention some of the travails going on there. I don't know what your take is on that. You own some of their trusts. I think you still own a, a shareholding in Scottish Mortgage and one or two of the other growth trusts that they've recently taken on. What's your take on going? I mean, the boardroom bust-up is, uh, well, I've always searched for the right adjective for this. Uh, unfortunate, shall we say. Settle on that. What do you make of that? I mean, it's pretty unusual for this kind of thing to happen. Very unusual. I'm not quite sure, obviously, what went on in, in the board. And I think you could say that the board probably could have handled it better. And the fact, obviously, there's been a difference of opinion. And one board member, who's now no longer a board member, felt they didn't have the Scottish mortgage, Bailey Gifford, didn't have enough expertise, perhaps in the private equity arena, and wanted some new board members to have expertise in that area. It's very difficult to say. I mean, it's now been more or less resolved. And I think the new chair, who I don't know personally, but I think he's quite impressive, to be honest with you, will actually catch a grip of things. I think the investment side has been obviously not great the last 18 months. Absolutely fantastic over the last 10 years. And it's still the best performing trust on a 10-year view, but it's one of the worst over the last 18 months. My own feeling is that I think Scottish Mortgage is it's well past selling it. The shares are on a 20% discount to asset value. Do I think it's going to perform in the short term, the next week, month, quarter? Probably not. Do I think if you don't own Scottish Mortgage, this is an interesting time to start considering it? I do, because I think there are some very interesting long-term structural winners in there, whether it's Moderna or Illumina in the listed portfolio or in the private equity area, which is what's caused a lot of the problem. They've got nearly 30% there. But it's some of these companies are big companies with a lot of revenue. So, I mean, SpaceX, you know, Northvolt, the Swedish battery company, Stripe, the digital payments company, and others, these are sizable businesses. Now, the valuations have come down. They may come down a bit further. But I do think that if you genuinely got a longer view on things, and it might take a five-year view, then actually beginning to start holding in this now might be quite uh, an interesting time to do that. I mean, one of the things I like to do is if you go back a long-term chart of Scottish mortgage share price and you draw a line across the trend line, if you do that with their you know, performance over the last 10 years or so, and you just extend that line, you just take out that whole peak that they had in 2021, it's about back on that trend line now. So in other words, if there is a sort of underlying growth rate in that portfolio, it's sort of back on track with that. So that would kind of reinforce what you're, you're feeling about where we are. It's just like that kind of whole period when they went up 100% in a year or something crazy like that, which is an extraordinary thing to happen for a, such a large investment trust. 
I mean, it's just that's basically just been kind of written out of the script now. It turned, a lot of it turned out to be illusory, and I'm afraid people who came in too late into that party uh, are going to lose some money, and that's very unfortunate. And and the recent sort of boardroom stuff is not helpful for the sector, is it? I mean, let's face it, we've had a couple of really tough issues. We've had that bursting on the scene, and then we've had the the saga at home reet, which doesn't look like that's going to end very well. So this is a slightly worrying time for the reputation of the investment trust. We don't need or want these kind of things to happen, do we? We certainly don't. I mean, I'm not that close to home REIT. I've never been involved in that one, kind of thankfully. But in the case of Scottish Mortgage, it's the biggest. It's in the FTSE 100. And you're absolutely right. There's the performance issue, but then there's what has gone on in the board. So the board now need to get kind of their act together. I think probably they're in the process of doing that. And as for the investment side of things, you're right. People who bought in in 2019, 2020, they will be standing on quite sizable losses. It's fine if you've held it for much longer than that. You probably are not. You may actually be making quite a bit of money. What I think is interesting is the big fall in the share price was from the autumn of 2021 to about last May, June, when it went from basically £15 to about 7 It's visited 8 it's visited six, but to be honest with you, it's roughly gone sideways for about nine months now. And I think it may be that you're in a period of just seeing things bottom out. And I think that may go on for a while yet. But when markets, and they're not always going to be as negative as they are currently, and you see either maybe one or two IPOs happening, or as we talked earlier, if interest rates start peaking and markets look forward to forward to lower interest rates, the sorts of holdings that Scottish Mortgage have got will start to come back into favour again. And so my feeling is it's probably too late to sell. Listen, I could be wrong, but I don't see the current share price going from £6.70 halving from here or something like that. I mean, obviously it could do, but I really would be very surprised. And I think you've now got a better than even chance of having some decent returns on a medium term view. And in terms of the other Bailey Gifford Trusts, obviously they expanded their stable of investment trusts quite significantly in 2020 when they took on two or three new mandates, had a, an IPO. You own some of those, but they've all got that sort of growthy style, the same kind of growthy style. And they also, most of them have some private uh, unlisted companies in there. That's been their kind of approach. What do you feel about those? I mean, they haven't uh, been as effective as badly as Scottish Mortgage, but they're not performing very well either. I mean, the, the US one has been a bit of a disaster, for example. You're absolutely right. It's it's not been... I actually don't have that. I've got Monks. I, I like Monks. It's a growth-orientated investment trust. It's got some similar holding to Scottish Mortgage. It's got a lot more holdings. And the similar ones it has to Scottish Mortgage are in much smaller quantities. So, for example, it has Tesla, but I'm going to be wrong here, but it's got one or one and a half percent Tesla, not a Scottish mortgage size position, which even after its sales and everything, I think it's still probably five percent there. And so it's got a broad approach. It's the best of the Bailey Gifford sort of growth investment style. I like that one. That is one I think would be one I'd be looking forward to to recovering. And that's on a pretty wide discount by its own history, isn't it? I think it's been out to around 12% or something. And they do do buybacks. So normally um, you'd think that's probably about the extent of the discount could actually go to. So they, uh, it won't go much wider than that, you, you would think. But interestingly, Monks is flat over this quarter. 
Scottish market is down eight or 10 and other areas of the investor trust sector fall by a lot more. So Monks is definitely feeling like it's stabilising. And I think, you know, it's one to consider. I like it and I've got a decent sized holding in that one. And I certainly intend to continue doing that. And then some of the other Bailey Gifford trusts, Bailey Gifford UK, Bailey Gifford Europe, I think they've all underperformed massively. It kind of feels like we're towards the end of that. But, you know, a lot depends. If interest rates go up further and we then fall into really quite severe recession, these trusts will be impacted. So there's no getting away from it. This this is not a one-way bet, far from it. But I do think you have seen some quite sizable falls. Bailey Gifford are good managers at what they do. They're well aware of this. So I think that, for me, I think they're kind of in the hold category now. A lot of people believe there is going to be a style shift in which kind of the value approach is going to do somewhat better than growth style. In relative terms, they could both go down, of course, or they could both go up. And I think you made a new investment in a well-known value investor, deep value investment trust based in Scotland. Of course. Uh, (laughs) Where else? Which is Aberforth Smaller Companies. Uh, Tell us about why you've uh, recently acquired them. Yes, there are a couple of trusts. I do think I'm interested, you know, for your listeners, I think the UK small cap, mid cap sector is very interesting. There's attractive values there. And it's underperformed really since the Brexit referendum. And in my case, I went and visited Aberforth in February, had a good in-person meeting, went through the portfolio with them and their style. I mean, they are a value-based investor. And just a couple of points, the PE of the Aberforth portfolio currently is eight times earnings. Now, that is, even for them, they've said they've very seldom been cheaper than that. That is really quite inexpensive. Indeed, even if earnings were to fall across the portfolio, say by 20% in the year we're currently in, it's still on a forward PE of 10. I mean, that is pretty inexpensive. And so I don't think, again, as I've kind of hinted at, that I don't think there's much going to happen in the very short term. But when interest rates start falling, even though we may be going into a recession, and therefore you say, oh, well, small caps are going to be hit, and they will be, the stock market looks 12 months down the road, and it will see lower interest rates, lower inflation, better times. And you could have a situation where actually some of the companies, say in the Aberforth portfolio, are actually producing missing estimates with their profits and earnings, but the share prices are going better. And interestingly, Aberforth, not all that often geared. I think they're kind of 6 or 7% geared at the moment. So the managers are finding a lot of attractive value. Another visit I did also in uh, earlier this month was to Henderson's. I had a session with James Henderson, who runs Lowland and Lord Adventure and Henderson Opportunities. And I bought some more Lowland. And James was saying to me, the PE of his portfolio is nine. So that's an all-cap portfolio. There's, you had up to half in FTSE 100 companies. He says he's going to trend that towards about a third with the other two-thirds in mid and small cap positions. He has a value style, not unlike Aberforth. Actually, Lowland has got quite a good dividend. It's one of the few trusts I've got in both my income and growth portfolio, because I think the capital upside could be quite sizable there. And it's the same arguments I was making for Aberforth. And I think, you know, things can remain good value for a long time. 
irritatingly, you have to have some patience. But when you're buying into something, in the case of Aberforth, they're on a 12 or 13 discount, Lowlands on a six or seven discount. Look at the ratings of the portfolio. Wow. At some stage, you're going to get some super returns there. And I'm sure you're right about that. So if we just looked at the kind of largest holdings you've got now, I mean, Lowland, I think, is up there. Also, we had Bruce Stout on recently at Murray International. Another Scotsman, dare I say. They seem to be <laughs> coming into their own at the moment in, in your portfolio and indeed in mine. Um, <laughs> so in terms of sort of global equity, that would be, you've obviously mentioned Monks and you've got quite a lot of Bruce Stout's uh, a trust which is, is done very well recently after what was a pretty lackluster period for three or four years before that. So it all comes around in the end. It does. And for those interested in income, Murray International has not missed a beat there. And I think it yields, say, four and a half, and they're edging that dividend ahead. But he does give you a great play on emerging markets, I mean, globally. And there are quality names in there, but with a very kind of strict value discipline too and he's a seasoned experienced manager so uh yep he's one to stick with there's no question about that so finally then peter let's turn and look at the income portfolio you've obviously mentioned lowland uh, that's one of the contributors there what have you done in that portfolio and uh, what do you think is the prospect for dividends and so on on that portfolio i think the yield is edging up to uh, quite attractive getting on for six percent or between five and a half and six percent which is not to be sneezed at. What do you think the outlook for dividends in your portfolio is? Obviously, depends where you have a recession or not, but uh, you'll be able to maintain those dividend levels? Yes. I mean, the revenue account is looking reasonably healthy. I mean, I hesitate to predict too far ahead, but at the moment, dividends from equity income trusts are coming through really quite well. So the law debentures, the Murray Internationals are solid and actually some of them are growing the dividends quite well the underlying growth in the average dividend is about 10 or 11 percent it only yields three three and a half but even so that's not bad going so, so i think the equity income side of that portfolio is in quite decent shape at the moment and then you've got the alternatives as well and we discussed some of the renewables trusts which i think you know are looking quite good from a dividend perspective so the dividend is actually growing at about 7 to 8% so that's quite attractive from an income perspective and we've got quite decent revenue reserves so the outlook for dividends i have to say from the managed portfolio income portfolio is quite healthy and that's good to hear. So that was uh, Peter Hewitt, the manager of the CT Global Managed Portfolio. And I might just mention that he, I believe, is going to be appearing at the Master Investor Show uh, next month in April, which I shall also be uh, speaking at. And well, we've been comparing notes about what we might say. It's going to be an interesting event. And uh, we've all got to um, come through with our wisest thoughts. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.